You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. We are in a time of some greatly needed expanded thinking about what God is up to in creation. Maybe God is not just wanting to rescue part of creation, but to restore all of it, and even to raise it to the divine life. And if you're thinking these kinds of things, Maximus Confessor is someone you definitely want to look into, which is why I'm glad to have back with us today Jordan Daniel Wood. Jordan is a scholar of Christian theology and the author of the book recently released, The Whole Mystery of Christ, Creation as Incarnation in Maximus Confessor. He holds a Ph.D. in historical theology from Boston College. Welcome back, Jordan Daniel Wood, to the Grace Saves All podcast. It's great to be here, David. Thanks for having me back again. Well, um, let's begin by just getting a little bit of background on Maximus Confessor. Why is it, do you think, that a Christian monk who lived from 580 to 622 has ended up being such a significant figure in modern theological discourse? Oh, that's a good question. I think, um, you, you know, we could even push it back. It's it's kind of remarkable to realize, as, I, as I've said before, that um, Maximus was not, uh, you know, didn't hold any official office in the church. He wasn't, he wasn't a priest. He wasn't a bishop. Um, he was a lay monk, but he commanded such respect in what he thought and his vision, I think, was so compelling, his mind so incisive that, and his life, I think, so you know, sanctified sort of this, uh, this life that of integrated thought and spirit that, you know, not only was he pretty consistently asked for his opinion about this or that issue or this, you know, this or that difficulty in scripture or in the church fathers, but also he was targeted at the end of his life, even as an 80 year old man, as somebody who needed to be silenced um, for the sake of socio-political uh, unity or, you know, just not to c- cause further division in a, in a turbulent time. So why, though, was that? So even in his own life, it's like there, there's, you get a sense that there's something just inherently, I think, beautiful and compelling and profound about his own theological vision that commanded that kind of attention. I think the same is true about today and his the kind of retrieval and um, uh, looking back to Maximus as, a, as an inspiration and a source uh, even today. I mean, this this work has been going on of retrieval has been going on for, you know, uh, at, at this point, 120, 30, 40 years. I mean, in the Eastern tradition, of course, Maximus has always stood as a kind of pillar uh, of, uh, of Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, majorly influential on, for example, St. Gregory Palamas who is himself a major figure for modern Eastern Orthodox thinking. But, but I think in the West, um, and, and, and including the influence from um, scholars in Russia as well, since the 19th century, he's really been, I mean, you'll, you'll find uh, 19th century Lutherans uh, writing about Maximus's Christology and their dogmatics. It's really interesting. Like, so, so in fact, I think the whole story about, his reemergence or rediscovery or like the, 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 
I maybe say the greater illumination on that ongoing engagement with Maxwell's that full story really hasn't been told. I don't, I don't think there is a one, one place to go to say, look, this is kind of how he made the comeback. But I think in broad brushstrokes, brushstrokes, I would say this, at least from my perspective as somebody who's participating now in the ongoing um, recovery and reappreciation of Maximus is that I think more than anything else, the reason why he's such a kind of um, compelling figure for us today is because his, his is a vision of synthesis. And I don't mean compilation, right? That's a sort of flimsy word of synthesis. It's not, it's not like he's a good compiler of all the important authorities prior to him or, uh, or he just sort of makes some decent observations about the scriptural text. Um, it's that it's the deeper sense of synthesis as yes, incorporating the good things and sometimes even disparate uh, trends prior to him, but also the creative synthesis, the creative integration of these prior uh, elements and trends into a sort of new, a newfound respect or vision for the whole. So, right, the book's called The Whole Mystery of Christ, partly because that synthesis is nothing less in Maximus's vision than Christ himself, than the incarnation itself, which is also, as it were, the flip side or the, uh, you know, the other side of human, of creation's deification, right? So he's bringing together, my point is he's bringing together all these strands. Uh, you know, for him, it's not like, first, let's talk about creation, and get our ducks in a row about God and as creator. Then let's talk about the fall and everyone's, you know, and, and then we'll talk about God's reaction to that. And with the history of Israel, then we'll talk. And that's usually the way we think, right? And then the cross and the incarnations are response to the fall, not for Maximus, for Maximus. These are all sort of integrated parts and aspects, which yes, you can consider separately, but in truth, they're really, they are really, uh, aspects of the whole one singular mystery of Christ. I thought, I thought one thing that was interesting about your book is that sort of going along with this, it, the first chapter is titled the middle, right? <laughs> which, which sort of speaks to the idea of synthesis. Yeah. And um, because there, there's something so revelatory that happens in the middle that it's by contemplating that, that you can make sense of the whole so yeah. why don't we go ahead and, and start then with um, with chapter one, which is um, entitled The Middle. On page 19, you write that the incarnation in the middle discloses all. And on page 33, you write that in the incarnation, God and humanity are hypostasized in Christ. And this is the Christologic of Maximus. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, right, exactly. So beginning the book with the middle rather than the beginning <laughs> is, <laughs> yeah. is, an, is an intentional, uh, you know, and that, I think the whole book tries to do that. It sort of tries to recreate as clearly as I could, although it gets dense and technical at times. My own appreciation and progress, uh, process of trying to understand Maximus's vision, which is one of kind of perpetually, you might say troubling or usefully troubling my own assumptions, right? And so I think I know what it means for God to create. I think I know what it means for the beginning to be the beginning. And that would be like at the very beginning of the sequence of time, you know, almost in a pseudo-deist fashion, God speaks into, create, into a being, the world, 
and then it sort of has a start and then that start unfolds in sequences and episodes, right? Etc. That's salvation history. We can talk about that. And then in the end, but I think what Maximus sees, which is already in the new Testament, I have to say, uh, is that the beginning and end of the ages has come upon us. That's what it says in, in the new Testament. It has come upon us, which is a funny thing to say. If you think about it, the beginning and the end has already happened before. Well, then where am I right now? <laughs> am I not going towards the end? If the end has already come and that's in the past. See, so already the New Testament, when it's speaking about the incarnation and it's speaking about Christ, you know, it is Jesus Christ who, I don't, I don't think the New Testament is under any illusion, obviously was born at a certain time, place. And uh, well, he's Jesus of Nazareth. So there's a certain space time locale. He's got mm-hmm. a certain culture. Is there all this stuff, right? So there's no, but in the New Testament already, you have, um, you know, Colossians 1 17, where yeah, I was just thinking image, about that. Exactly. The image of the invisible God is called what? Not just, not just the image of the invisible God, not just uh, the one who spoke to us the greatest religious truths in history, not just the greatest prophet, but the archi. The archi, the principle, the beginning of all creation. Um, Father John Bear, I always mention him because he also likes to point out, like, for example, in Revelation chapter 3, verse, I think, 14, same kind of formulation, but it's first person. Jesus is speaking in the letters to the churches, right, of Revelation, the seven churches. And he says, I am the beginning of God's works. So, and this harkens back, right, to Proverbs 8 and wisdom being, you know, he created, in, he created me the beginning of his ways, or his works. So there's all this, so if God creates the world through and in wisdom, or through and in his word, and if his word is Jesus Christ, we got this paradox all of a sudden, that even is, is evident on the surface of the New Testament, which is that the beginning has come later. And not only later than what we would consider the beginning of the sequence, but even earlier than the end of the sequence, what we would consider. But that's because we think in sequences and narratives all the time. It's easier for us. Right? I, I, if you wanted to, if you want to ask me about who I am, I'll say, well, I was born this time, this time, and I'm going to tell you a story. And that's going to be, that's going to reveal to you my identity. Now, story is important. No question. It's not that that's mm-hmm. not important. It's just that once you, what does it mean to think about it, the story of the one who is himself the beginning, the middle, and the end? <laughs> so if he himself, as, as Maxwell says in questions twenty, question 22, that Jesus Christ is the beginning, the middle, and the end, um, then, and yes, that there is a story that goes with that. It's the gospel story, and we read ver- various versions, and we've, we reflect on that throughout the centuries. But that story does, of course, occur, and it appears in history. You can speak about Jesus's life like you could any historical figures. Like you can, you can approach him that way. That's fine. It's just that there's more. And if the significance of that story is with the New Testament and what Christians all the way till right now say it is, which is nothing less than the union of eternity and time of creator and creature of the immutable with immutable, right? Of that, which has no origin with that, which has origin creation. If that is the set, the significance of this story, then the story itself beckons us to go beyond its surface sort of sequential logic. So I begin with the middle uh, because I think Maximus does, because there is where what you might say the whole first emerges or appears for us to get an intuition or a grasp or a sense of. On page 52, you make the note that Chalcedonian Christology 
affirms the 100% humanity of Christ and the 100% divinity of Christ. And this absolute identification leads logically to apocatastasis. This is this fundamental tension that, that works its way out. Hmm. Yeah. And I, so one, one sort of note to make is that, I mean, the book itself isn't really about, and I don't really delve directly into say Maximus's opinion of apocatastasis and universalism. Um, but I you might I say did. that I, you might say that I read it rather carefully to note when those were peeking through. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it's, it's funny, actually, there was a, there was a critical <laughs> review of the book that came out recently, uh, who isn't a fan, uh, really of the book or of uh, universalism and sort of I, so I have to say this, right? Because he, he sort of subtly or not really not so subtly explicitly uh, invokes universalism almost like as over determining my reading of Maximus on like two or three occasions within, within his 12 page review. And, and I just, I have to note that I actually never address universalism except in a footnote directly. And even then I don't take a exegetical stand. I think you can, and it is kind of odd to charge me with, like, say, my universalism is overdetermining my reading of Maximus, since uh, this person, who would I think is supposed to be a fan of Hans Urs von Balthasar, we talked about him on here before, um, did actually believe, like, he made exegetical defenses in cases that Maximus was, in fact, a universalist. And so it's odd for somebody who is a sort of loose Balthasarian that w- would be concerned for me to have uh, my universalism, which I hardly never, w- which I don't really ad- address in the book directly, overdetermine my reading of Maximus when, in fact, on Balthazar's own terms, that would actually be correct. That would be the right way to, to read him. And, and it kind of. So anyhow, I have to I have to say that just to just to clarify things and get make things clear. But nevertheless, yeah, go ahead. Well, there's this whole th- thinking about okay, what do we do with this Christ being 100% human? and 100% divine. I was wondering if that's what later got him into a little bit of hot water when, because they had that Chalcedon, they had uh, determined that, okay, clearly uh, Christ has two natures. There was this monophysite controversy that then arose and the the fifth ecumenical council tried to address that. But the idea is they, they kept having to affirm that, okay, we, he has a human nature and a divine nature. And then right. so later Maximus wondered, okay, well, does that maybe then that means that he has two wills. Right. And then that's what got him into trouble. And then he was, um, I guess, tortured. Yeah. Yeah. His right hand was cut off. Tongue was cut out. Uh, um, for relief for just refusing to stop talking about it. It wasn't even like they were saying like, you have to change your mind or whatever. They're just like, stop talking about it because it was causing divisions. I mean, it's always right in this era. There's always the political and the theological are never too far apart. So then, but then later on, his view was affirmed. Yeah. 19 years after his death. Yep. So So he dies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So he, he really, his, his, his views about Christ and what it means for, um, I guess the creation to be hypostasized or humanity to be hypostasized in Christ. He didn't really get in trouble for that. It was later on, it was other things and it had to do with sort of a political controversy. Yes. Um, Yes. Well, and it, you know, and I think as, as these controversies typically do, they invoke a lot of different, you might call neuralgic points because, you know, 
what was targeted with Maxus, one of the things targeted is this kind of obstinacy or his insistence that we have to affirm, like, op- like explicitly affirm Christ's two wills, one divine and one human. And again, it's not so much that they were like trying to go toe to toe with him on the precise technical speculative. I don't think they could really. I mean, they people did try and it didn't really work out for him usually, but it was kind of a, another, but in a way more fundamental question for, for someone who's like pragmatic or ecclesial or politically minded, which is why, why are you so confident and insistent on this point when you can't even point to say like a single synod or ecumenical council, certainly that, and I know it's a little anachronistic, but let's just go with it now. You can't appoint to an unambiguous official declaration of your view that this is the church's view. So Maximus is occupying an interesting point, which I think we often gloss over in the history of Christianity and of the church, which is he's a sort of liminal or transition figure whose personal confidence outpaces the institution or the church's official de- de- declaring or right or a, a sort of promulgation of this idea mm-hmm. and so they just wanted him to stop insisting so strongly on his what they considered his viewpoint whether or not he was right and uh and especially given the fact that he has no in a sense traditional credentials to point to and in fact he was often confronted with a line from saint cyril of alexandria or a line from what who they would call St. Dionysius the Areopagite that seemed to contradict what he was saying about whether the activities, the two activities of Christ or the two wills of Christ. And so not only did he not, he lacked kind of explicit official precedent for his Christology, his Christological view here, but there even seemed to be prior authorities that, w- that would have been in tension or in opposition. So he had to explain himself right in that whole context. Um, yeah, so I I think, um, but yeah, then 19 years after his death, his his views are vindicated. So that should say, if anything, that should tell us that we sh- we should <laughs> we should be a little bit uh, apprehensive about making absolute judgments in real time about what is or isn't an expression of fidelity. To <laughs> well, and if you get if you get a little bit ahead of the where the institution is, you know that can have negative uh, effects on you. I I think this is happening now. I think there's a lot of interest in apocatastasis, universal salvation, universal restoration, but the interest in it and the scholarship in it is a little ahead of where the institutions are comfortable. And so if you're an open advocate of apocatastasis or universal restoration, that let, let's just say that that could affect your job search. Yeah. Uh, well, and a lot of institutions. Oh yeah, I mean, I was asked. I was at a. I was on an. I'll just be open about it. I was on an on-campus interview last week uh, for a for a job that's like a tenure-track job, and I was explicitly asked about this. Um, it was probably the only contentious thing I was asked. I wasn't asked about my Christology, right? I wasn't asked. asked about, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. I wasn't asked about my Trinitarian <laughs> theology or why I defended Saint Bonaventure against Saint Thomas Aquinas on a certain point of Trinitarian <laughs> theology and writing. No, I was asked about. Um, I wasn't asked about my reading of Origin, uh, not on Apocatastasis, but on allegory and his theological justifications for figurative reading of the Old Testament. All of which are some of those are actually live discussions today, to my kind of to my chagrin, actually. But um, it, I was asked about this, so it really proves your point. I mean, the, it's an anecdote, but it proves the point, which is, you know, in fact, I think the way it was framed to, uh, put to me exactly was, 
you've been an outspoken and even vociferous defender of universalism. And so um, basically, how do you square that? Since that's heterodox, that's what was said to me. Since that is heterodox, um, as if that's not, in fact, the point of contention. But since that's clearly heterodox, um, you know, basically, how do you hold that together with with being Catholic? And, and actually, David, I get I get messages like that. I'd say multiple times a week, and it's but it's from people that are sympathizers, right? People that are like, mm-hmm. I do ask these questions. I have struggled with this. I've never seen anyone that's Catholic and a universalist talk about this stuff openly, and and they're struggling through it, and sometimes profoundly. So. Um, this has opened up for me in a new way. I mean, it's something I've always been sort of theoretically aware of, but, um, it's opened up for me in a new way, kind of reflecting on the very meaning of tradition. I mean, it's an old, it's an old question. It's an old idea, but the development, uh, what it means for God to reveal God's self in history through the church, you know, through the church's work and teaching, um, in time, you know, and so it's, so it's all these bigger questions and, it does often from, at least for me, it, it ends up coming back to some of these, um, yeah. uh, points of Christology really. Well, I can see, I can see a progression, you know, in the 20th century, you had figures like Bart and Balthazar and, um, you know, they kind of went as far as they could, but now, uh, we're, we're, we're having figures like, uh, David Bentley Hart and, um, you know, you're kind of in that ballpark too. People who are saying, "Listen, this is within the history of the tradition. It's, it, it, you know, it has a strong exegetical foundation. It makes the Christian faith rationally, morally coherent. There's no reason for us to not be able to talk about this openly and to, and to advocate for it with within the bounds of the church. It's it's happened before. Why can't it happen? Why can't it happen now?" Well, and that's, that's just, that's just it. Look, I can't, nobody can predict, you know, who, you know, I I don't, I wouldn't even rank, rank myself in, you know, among the names of influential people. I probably won't be. In fact, at the end of the day, I'm just a state home dad of four, four daughters. That's really who I am. But I I do think about these things and I try to do it well and responsibly. And um, I think it's not often enough stated that there are really two forms of presumption. We only usually fixate on one, one because it's easier, right? It's easier to say, you know, it's presumptuous to throw off all the old stuff, to throw off the tradition, to throw off authorities like the enlightenment sort of bid us to do right. And all this. And that's how presumptuous is that? That's a sort of brazen display of reasons, human reasons, wish to be autonomous and independent of God and revelation and having to have faith and all this stuff. Right. And it's like, these are just iterations of that within theology. You've got these hothead edgelords, like young theologians, like, like me or something who's, who's just trying to kind of make a name and, and push the bounds. And that's like one form of presumption that's easily supposedly easily diagnosed and dismissed as presumption or pride. But I think what's a little less often the case, but needs to be just as forcefully stated. Like, I agree with that first one. People can obviously, I mean, knowledge puffs up, right? Paul says, mm-hmm. love builds up. Nevertheless, there's, there's an equally, I think, and maybe even more, uh, more, um, uh, as it were, perilous 
temptation or form of presumption precisely because it goes under a much more uh, explicit show of piety, which is one that pretends that tradition isn't living, isn't ongoing, isn't continuing to, in the words of De Verbum, section eight from Vatican II, uh, just to speak Catholicese for a second, uh, mm-hmm. uh, it, that, that the word of God is ever, quote, ever progressing ever progressing in its accomplishment or its actual realization in the plenitude in its plenitude. And that the first way that that happens, or at least the first that they mention, is quote, through the study and contemplation of believers. And then also through the magisterium and other, other sort of, right. But the thing is it's ongoing. It's an ongoing synthesis. Um, and it's, it's a synthesis precisely because Christ himself, the person of Christ is himself a synthesis of apparent opposites, humanity, divinity, creator, creature, right? Eternal, temporal. And, and since he is a person and the revelation of God's self is God as an infinite self. And yes, in a Trinitarian right frame, not just an idea. It's not like Jesus was a really good thinker. He's a great philosopher. He's got a good system for you. He's a person. He reveals God, God's self as personal, infinitely personal. And that's and so you can't receive that revelation apart from attention to his personhood, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, I think this other form of presumption would be this, to implicitly or explicitly assume that what we've received in the deposit of faith or God's self-revelation in Christ is basically a list of propositions or dogmas, or a system, which can be handed on from generation to generation, like you can hand on the axioms of, of mathematics. Um, and I think if you think of it that way, that's actually a kind of implicit and prideful claim to have mastered what isn't conquerable that way, which is the infinite revelation of God, and in fact, the personal God. So that's a that's a that's also a form of presumption with respect to the to the tradition. The hard middle road of being faithful to tradition is to reject both. And to do and feel the synthesis, try to achieve it. You give it your best shot. You may or may not. You won't know how it's going to be evaluated in the, in the course of time. Mm-hmm. And that's not really up to you. But it is up to you to do what the best you can with what you have. And so that's what I think. I think you're right to say, like, we've already seen this progression specifically on this question mm-hmm. of, of, uh, of hell. I mean, I've pointed out a million times, but compare, even in the Roman Catholic world, compare what the Council of Trent says about hell even what the current catechism says, and it's pretty vastly different. Um, there's some convergences, but there's a lot left out and a lot kind of reframed. So anyhow, it's uh, it's these abstractions about what it is or is not to be faithful to tradition, I think mostly are red herrings and honestly kind of a lot of noise. Well, that, 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 that brings to mind two things, is that in a way what you're doing is what Maximus was doing, because Maximus in his day was already looking back to earlier, some earlier figures in the tradition and thinking about what they, and, and reflecting on their thoughts. And that's just what, and so you're reflecting on Maximus, reflecting on, <laughs> kind of reflecting on them and the idea that, that there's this sort of ever-expanding contemplation of God Reminds me of Gregory of Nyssa's um, uh, thinking about epic tasis, mm-hmm. where you know it's not like the we are ever going to fully grasp or comprehend it. It will be a continual unfolding, continual you know new new revelations, new understanding that continual moving forward. Yeah, exactly, and you know, and I think 
I think in general, I'll just make this kind of remark here because it relates to what you just said. We ought to be a little more attentive to the inherently paradoxical nature of, I'll put it this way, eschatological language, right? So just, I was just reading earlier today, Ratzinger, his book on eschatology, and he's he's very strongly, he's certainly against universalism, uh, but he's sort of got a, he's not even quite as Balthazarian. I don't even know if he's really, I don't know if I would characterize him as a hopeful universalist either. He's sort of more like we just can't say. It's almost like a sheer agnosticism because of the sake of the power of human freedom to determine its destiny that God has gifted it with. But he, he, for example, he mentions at one point, he's like, look, hell is just clear. Like there's a quote that everyone likes to qu- a quote from this book that says there's no quibbling about it. You know, the two centuries prior to Jesus and in Jesus's own teachings, hell is is just basically a part of it. Like you have to deal with it too bad. And then he cites some texts from the New Testament. One of which, or actually the first of which, um, when he mentions the apostolic witness of Paul, is 2 Thessalonians 1.9. So I decided to look yeah. that up, and I was reading the Greek. Okay, the phrase used there is eternal destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's citing this as something that's obviously a support of hell, quote, something called hell. Um, eternal destruction. Well, if you just look at the, the word uh, for destruction there... Um, so for it, it, it often just means ruin or decay or isn't it olethros exactly olethros yes is is and then so it's olethros eonios eonion and and the grammar there so okay what's really fascinating is like so if you go to Plato in the in his treatise on the Parmenides he uses that same word in opposition to genesis gen right creation generation becoming right usually the philosophers interpreted that way in other words this realm that we're in in space time where things arise and they disappear and they grow and then they diminish right the flux the flux mm-hmm. the change of everything so the opposite of that in plato is olethros so instead of something coming and waxing and waning it just sort of utterly vanishes it just destroyed and ruins and decomposes and it's gone so it's so um um it's it's a kind of contrary, I suppose. Absolute opposition is me, but let's think about. It. Then you look at Ionion, as you've probably talked about many times before on here, right? That means most fundamentally uh, and most consistently means basically just that which uh, you know Plotinus and Aristotle make this etymological point. But whether or not it's true, it illustrates how they thought of it. Ionios is a combination of ai always and on the participle for being, always being that which always is. And that's something that's eonion. Okay. Okay. So if that's that which always is, in other words, it's simply a negation that this kind of reality, which is eternal or eonion, is that which doesn't wax and wane and isn't subject to flux and ruination and growth and augmentation. Right. It's something that's consistent, integral, self-same, self-identical, never changes, never diminished in what it is and how it is. Okay, so let's go back to Second Thessalonians one nine. Those two words put together, what are we saying there? A, a changeless ve- a ruination, a destruction a, 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 that is itself never destroyed, right? And and so there's inherent tension in the in the uh, there's inherent paradox, right? The structure is itself already paradoxical. And what's the thing about that is that you can go different ways with it, right? You mm-hmm. could emphasize the the 
the, the, the sort you can easily sort of say, well, it's sort of like, yeah, you're constantly burning and you're like also constantly being replenished so that you can continue to burn or something. Or you can say maybe uh, what we're talking about here is is a destruction which is which is itself done by that which never uh, you know always is the truth the the Ionian thing. There's any well, the point you know, is yeah that's why you know the Ionian sometimes I think of it as well God is the God of the aeons God is the, is the aeons come from God, um, but the, to be Ionian also means to to have the character of God too. So an Aeonian destruction would be a destruction that has the character of God in it. Um, right. So there's all the, there's all these nuances of language that are that are that are going on in that text. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is just this is just inherent in not only thinking about eschatology that is the age to come which already is a kind of negation to the age we currently are in, right? And so you're already in tension. It's like there's parts of this world which which reveal or anticipate the age to come, but it's not itself the age. And so these are already self-referential. It's already yeah. paradoxical. And even in it, like Ephesians 2, 7, Paul talks about coming ages. So it's not right. just, I mean, it, the, the, there, there are aeons, there are ages. There is some progression which is going from beginning to end. And then once, the, once those... Uh, aeons have completed their purpose then at that point creation will be complete which let's 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 because this gets us back to the uh the crystal logic of of creation and this is your chapter two that that uh this crystal logic the crystal logic of creation that christ is the logic of uh created beings could you talk a little bit more about that yeah so i mean um Kind of, kind of harking back to like what we said about Colossians one uh, seventeen or different parts of the New Testament, um, which you know earlier on the Arians, the, like Arius, who wanted to make Christ simply the highest or most perfect creature, or maybe a little more complicated, something like the bridge between creature and creator, they could point to these texts and say, look, he's called the firstborn of all creation, right? He's called the beginning, the principle of God's creation. Um, and um, I think, I think, of course, what Chalcedon and certainly Maximus wants to end up defending is is that he is both creator and creature. He's both fully and perfectly divine, and um, and uh, creature. But but this this automatically inter- introduces a kind of deeper insight, or at least a question, or the grounds for a question, which is Christ Himself, insofar as He's human, is a creature. So that's the part that like Arius was getting right. It's just that the church would say, yes, but there's more. And the more is that he's also the, the creator. And there's a, there's a line Maximus has where he, he speaks about how he created himself. So that's again, inherently paradoxical. The creator creates himself. He is his own creature. Now what, why this is important for its Christ's relation to creation is that if with the new Testament, we say that he is the beginning of God's creation. It's like, we're saying he offers the very logic or structure of what it means for God to create. And far from, I think, what our initial appre- our, our initial uh, attempts to understand God as creator and creature, we usually, again, revert back to a kind of simplistic narrative sequential structure. First, there's God hanging out, doing whatever he does as God, 
prior, and we'll start using all this language like like you would in a story. Right, before, However, like like God is in our own timeline. Exactly, and and we're just it's kind of an unreflective way. It's a natural way. It's not. It's, it's kind of like you kind of have to start here. I'm not even saying that's it's it's a it's like automatically wrong. It's sort of a start, but you have to see it as a start rather than as it already disclosing to you the way it is or the truth. So you start by sort of saying like. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I think I know what it means for God to be creator because it's like he's a cause. And as we all know in our experience of cause and effect and even in this life, the cause has to be there first in order to cause whatever it succeeds it, right? Whatever the consequence or the effect is. And so, okay, in a certain way, maybe in an analogous way, God is there prior or before or above or behind or something as the cause, as the ground of being. He gives being so there's a sort of act on his part or he causes the world or he creates it and that then results in creation in creatures and the proliferation of creatures according to their own kind as it says in genesis right so that's a pretty clear story it's it's coherent on its surface where i think the trouble comes is when the new testament identifies christ in the middle again who, with the fuller understanding of the church later, kind of in Maximus in particular, who is his at once creator and creature, that means that the generation, his being creature, is simultaneous with his being creator, and that him being both is the generation of their relating, their mutual relating. So there's like a deeper identity, which is the person of Christ, that underlies the very creator-creature relationship in the historical incarnation. And what I'm trying to suggest in that chapter and the next is that, in fact, this is the logic as well, all the way throughout to the whole of creation. On page uh, 58, you write here and elsewhere, Maximus clearly avers that the realization of the ineffable, the ineffable union effected in Christ is the very same destined for all humanity for and in every person. Mm -hmm. Thus, the claim intensifies, and here you're quoting Maximus, for because of Christ, or rather the mystery according to Christ, all the ages and everything in those same ages have received the beginning and the end of their existence in Christ. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's just think about that language. That comes from question 60 of questions and responses to Thalassius. It's a famous one. It's, it's justly famous. It's amazing. Um, and he's commenting, by the way, there on a verse in, in, uh, from Peter, which says, which speaks about the mystery from, you know, from before the foundation, one of those before the foundation of the world things. That's something that, that, that an event happened from our perspective in history, an actual historical, the Jesus of Nazareth, the, the, the birth, life, death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, which is in the middle of history, discloses something that was always there, you know. Mystery in the New Testament is most often it carries the sense of something disclosed, which was hidden prior before the ages. Right. And this mystery is clearly for Maximus. It is the it is the the hypostatic union. It is the the union. And even as he says, the identity of all of creation, all of humanity with God and with with the creator. Um, and so let's think about the language you just quoted there that, or you quoted me quoting Maximus, <laughs> um, <laughs> that in this event, right, he's not talking about an idea. This isn't just a principle or, or a, a kind of structure of reality statically considered. 
He's talking about an event in history. And he says, in this, all the ages have received their beginning and end. Yeah, so, that's pretty. And this is an event that happened in an age. And yet that very age somehow paradoxically receives its beginning in that event. Okay, you see how we're starting to bend our minds around this, what we should mm-hmm. probably expect to be a pretty mind-bending mystery, since after all, it is the, uh, it is the um, you know, the fundamental mystery at the heart of the Christian faith, which is the creator, creature, identity, in Christ. That's why I have it to be, uh, as one of the epigrams of the book, I have a, same, a quote from St. Bonaventure in there. I think it's, I think I left it in Latin, so that was sort of mean to do, but it's, um, he says that. He says that this is the greatest mystery. Um, Maximus says that as well. He says it's the summit of all mysteries, the source of all miracles. And so, anyhow, the point is, we should expect it to be paradoxical and mind bending. I, I don't. I'm always sort of baffled that people don't think it will be. <laughs> it's like you just said God died. You said God was born. You know, I mean, look, there's been controversy after controversy in history, and certainly in the early church about this, precisely because it isn't immediately self evident how this makes any sense at all. So we've got mind-bending, paradoxical mystery at the heart of the Christian faith. But one of the, yes, one of the uh, mind-bending implications would be that it's just as true to say that all of the ages receive a beginning and their end, but their beginning as well. They are key, once again, in some event that happened in an age past, in the middle, which is which is where first, and you've already hinted at it, it's where first and definitively um, the creator, the son of God, becomes identical in his person, not in nature, but in his person with being created. With a, He's also a creature. But that, that he does so, and this is why for Maximus, deification is rooted in incarnation. He does so not just to kind of say, look at this trick I can do. I'm going to do something really wild in the middle of history that you don't expect and you're going to be shocked. No, it's not like a spectacle. It's not a mere spectacle. What it is, it's the true beginning of God's real creative work, which we would have assumed happened back at the Big Bang or whenever you think the world started, like in a sequence. But actually for the New Testament, for Christianity, and for, I think, Maximus in particular, it began really here, right in the middle. And there's nothing that says how the true beginning must look in its beginning, right? So why not in the middle? Why would it have to correspond to the beginning of the sequence? So any at anyhow... He's saying that this, which happened in the middle of history, is is the same thing that's going to happen and is destined to happen to you, to all creatures, and all the ages, all human beings, right? Which, once again, just to put a pin on it, to connect with Maximus' sort of high, you know, speculative flying, it does relate directly to our own scriptures. Look, this is the same logic of, like, say, even Romans 6, because you were buried with in death with Christ, in his death. You will be raised to life in his life. So the idea is what he did and underwent is the very pattern, the logic, the structure of all life. And yes, everything dies, but precisely because God died, death becomes itself the means to true life. I mean, this is so this is why, you know, the imitation of Christ and stuff isn't just he's a really good guy. I want to be like him. It's when I imitate in him, I start to become him. I start to receive his very life, which is the primordial act, even though it appeared in history in the middle. It's the primordial act of all history. And it's the culmination of all history. And the end has come upon us, Paul says, right? So this is the structure, right, of 
of uh, I, I think of of the whole. It's it's this is why you were made. There's no room in Maximus for the incarnation as a plan B. God's going to decide to do something because, oh, no, you sinned. No, no. This is the whole point of Adam and humanity and creation from the get-go, from the eternal council even says of God. So, Well, one of the things that's, that I was really impressed by with Maximus is just the relentless reflection on the meaning of the incarnation. We're, we're used to thinking of the the uh, crucifixion and the resurrection as being the main kind of the, you know, the main event, but he really plums the depth of the incarnation. And you have a really beautiful quote from him on uh, page 60 of the book, when he's reflecting on the idea of recapitulation Mm. and he's in Maximus says, and he recapitulated in himself in a manner appropriate to God, all things showing that the whole creation is one just as if it were another human being completed by the natural completed by the mutual coming together of all its members inclining towards itself in the wholeness of its existence according to one unique simple undefined and unchangeable idea that it comes from nothing accordingly all creation admits of one and the same absolutely undifferentiated logos that its existence is preceded by non-existence. And then you end the quote there, but then you make the note that incarnation discloses the principle of creation ex nihilo. Maximus extends Irenaeus and even origin quite a bit further here. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was an important note that you'd made. Yeah. And that's, again, it kind of goes with something I said earlier, which is I think when we talk about creation from nothing, we more or less reify the nothing. That is to say, we make nothing something like a dark something. Um, And we say like, we're calling, uh, we were called forth from some dark abyss or something like that. And not only does that introduce a kind of distance conceptually or or on on the level of the image between God and the world, which I think is just an uncritical image. But also it kind of it introduces a, another origin that isn't God. Something like the nothing from which we all come. And it's and what I'm trying to get at there with uh, that, that quotation from Ambiguum 41 is not only do I think it's striking, by the way, that right, he, he basically says the entire cosmos is as another human being in Christ. And that gets at the real deep sense of recapitulation which in the Greek, right, is like to, to kind of resource or bring all up into its head. It's, it's life, like it's life center. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the fact that, and this is sort of my extension there, and it goes to my remark, not even being made from nothing separates you from God, since God himself in Christ was also made from nothing. He is a creature. And I think, I think people kind of, um, I think they dance around this a lot because, of course, it's uncomfortable, right? It's it's a sort of, but it's seeing through Chalcedon's symmetry that I talk about in the book. The kind of like, look, it's like he's he's fully human, and if you believe being fully human entails, at least as a part of being human, being created, and if you think being created means being created from nothing rather than some like say pre-existent pre-existent matter or something, from nothing, whatever else you think that means, then Christ is just as much created from nothing as he is generated from the Father before all ages 
you know, from the something, the one and only reality, God. And that's, he is so much the center point, the identity of extreme opposites as in Maximus's language. He says, he, he can, he says in one letter, he can, he himself comprises the interval between the extremes in himself. That even being made from nothing is not, does not exclude you from being made and born of God. Because God himself was made from not made himself from nothing. You see what I'm saying? So it's that paradoxical. So that's, um, you know, and uh, I think that's that's what I mean there by saying, like, he's disclosed the logic. Because apart from Christ, you might think it just means I came from some random dark abyss that's in, just indescribable. But it's sort of outside of God. It's not really that I came from God. It's like I came from God calling me forth from something else. So I kind of have two principles, two beginnings. Um, and as you probably noticed in the fourth chapter, that gets cashed out in the spiritual life as uh, sort of as the, the origin, the quote unquote origin of sin. But we can get to that later. But uh, nevertheless, it's that initial conception might make me feel like, you know, I'm so much distant from God by the fact that I'm created by God. That how could I ever be really united with God? You know, what is man that you are mindful of him? That sort of thing. Um, and what I think that one of the many things that the, the, the plumbing, the depths of the incarnation, the way St. Maximus does, what, one of the insights it affords us is this profound insight into God's canonic love, which is to say, even being created from nothing is as if nothing in terms of, you know, it doesn't in any way separate you from being born of God, which is the most inherently, almost counterintuitive idea that I could think of. So the event, the event of God's incarnation, his becoming his own creature while remaining creator, is what's disclosing the true and deepest logic of our being created from nothing so that we might be made God. Well, one of the things that, uh, that uh, an issue that's got going in the sort of I'll call the modern debate about Christian universalism has been whether or not God had to create. And you have an interesting uh, comment on this on page 77. You write, um, for Maximus, one thing remains surest of all, quote, the purpose of God who created all things must be changeless concerning them, unquote. Mm -hmm. Then you write, ultimately, the words incarnation defines for us God's unwavering and irrevocable disposition toward creation. The incarnation reveals that God is, quote, truly creator by nature, unquote. Thus, Maximus joins those venerable voices of the patristic tradition who affirm creation's sublime, sublime necessity, rarely defended in contemporary theology, with the exception of another great Russian theologian, Florovsky's master, Sergius Bulgakov. <laughs> yes. So, uh, right. And then in the notes there, I provide, you know, where people can look at those. Um, yeah. This is very much to the heart of, yeah, a lot of the modern debates, but, but also some perennial issues, whether we're talking about theologies of grace, whether we're talking about eschatology, whether we're talking about creation. And I think it's remarkable because, you know, at least one kind of modern, outspoken, very online critic of uh, Christian universalism 
who very often wants to critique the uh, the quote unquote implicit necessity and pantheism, you know, of Christian universalists, uh, because they think in God's love, God God actually his love is uh, basically stable and dependable. <laughs> his, I'm, I'm a little being a little unchar- uncharitable there, but it's that. It, but but I have to say that is the way any universalist I've ever read or talked to or, or or have been familiar with from really any age of the Christian tradition has thought of it. I mean, I've never I've never read once read any Christian universalist, universalist that thought God needed the world like the way you need bread and water. Um, like, you, like sort of this impersonal law of necessity without which you're going to deteriorate and vanish. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a caricature to act like that's really a good critique of Christian universalism. Rather, what it is, is it, it's an attentiveness to the divine love, which you could go to, right, figures as diverse as Dionysius Areopagite, who says God, he speaks of God's ecstasy, like famously, right? God's ecstasy, his ecstatic love, which makes him go out of his own nature, out of his out of himself, almost as it were passively drawn by our beauty or what he sees we could be in order to create us. Or you could cite St. Gregory of Nazianzus, who in a theological oration says that God was not content to love just among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but as it were, the goodness and love spilled over. It had to spill over a limit. And that that would that spilling over is creation. Or you could go to Eckhart, or you could go to St. Gertrude of Health, like all over the place, west and east. And this crops up this idea that, yes, of course, the necessity of blind, impersonal law, law-like necessity, or even the kind of necessity of abstract syllogistic reasoning is inappropriate to speak of when you're talking about God's, what God does, the necessity of his acts in relation to his nature. Now, another, another uh, I guess, debate or issue that comes up is to what extent might we be called the children of God, and then to what extent we might ultimately be identified with God. And on page 82, you have a, you have a quote uh, from Ambiguous 7, uh, 31, and where Maximus writes, The aim is that what God is to the soul, the soul might become to the body, and that the creator of all might be proven to be one, and through humanity might come to reside in all things, in a manner appropriate to each, so that the many, though separated from each other in nature, might be drawn together around the one nature of man. When this happens, God will be all things and everything, 1 Corinthians 15.28, encompassing all things and hypostasizing them in himself. For beings will no longer possess independent motion or lack any portion of God's presence. We are and are called gods, children of God, the body, and members of God, Ephesians 1.23 and Ephesians 5.30. And it follows portions of God and other such things in the progressive ascent of the divine plan to its final end. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful uh, you know, example of the sort of reading and writing you'll, you'll encounter if you read Maximus. He's just... The breadth of it is, again, that synthesizing power. Um, what's really noteworthy there is he's he's following and in some ways developing the same kind of reading of 1 Corinthians 15, 28, God will be all in all. As you find in St. Saint, Saint Gregory of Nyssa's um, you know, famous meditation on that same text. But what's important about both of them 
is that they run it through the person of Christ. And therefore, right, the way in which we are incorporated and unified to God isn't some kind of abstract, like, I have a principle of divinity in me, and that sort of abstractly and mindlessly leads me to reunification with with reality, because after all, reality is one, not many, etc. Really what it is, it's an, it's an utterly personal, even intersubjective, um, which, but I think the better way to say it is just, it's an actual union of love. But it's a union of love where love achieves identity, which and a kind of identity that goes beyond our typical notions of identity. And yes, that's mystical. Yes, that's difficult to explain. But that's precisely why Maximus, I think, goes there. So your God is all in all, precisely by making all creation members of his one body, the body of Christ. God is all in all and, and, and therefore creates children of God. Precisely because God has shown in Christ that he can become a child of himself and therefore make that affect that, quote, beautiful exchange, which is another thing he says in that, around that text. Um, being the child of God doesn't even exclude you from being equal to God, which is a phrase Maximus uses, not me. Uh, because God, as he says, quote, God in you, the son has even the son of God by nature has become in you a son of God by grace. So even the fact that I have to become a child of God by grace, and yes, through my freedom, yes, through the spiritual life, yes, through my progressive ascent, as you read there, right? Progressive ascent in the spiritual life through Maximus, he would say, asceticism, ascesis, right? But the spiritual life and my love of neighbor and all of the virtues that you have to practice and in the sacraments, which are the center of the, of the Christian life, all of these are means to uniting me progressively but as I do so, right, even though I have to do so by grace, that doesn't mean that the finished uh, uh, result or the achievement is less identical or equal to God, precisely because God in his rather insane love has emptied himself to the point of also having to progress, not in a sequential way, right? Not like he's he put down his God stuff for a while and picked up human stuff <laughs> for a while, but precisely remaining God, he also took on the process of becoming God by grace. And that is why all of this stuff, right? This sort of panentheistic metaphysics, the quote unquote monistic metaphysics, the kind of consummation of God all in all, why it is distinctively Christian and why it doesn't, I think, fall prey to a lot of the easy criticisms people try to make is precisely because this only occurs in and through Christ, who is the condition and consequence of the entire process, the whole mystery of Christ. And to be honest, this is just nothing less than Colossians 3 already explicitly said. Colossians 3, which says that your, your life is hidden with Christ in God, so that when Christ might be made manifest, you too will be made manifest. In other words, your manifestation and Christ's manifestation are bound up together, like they're simultaneous. And then it goes through the typical vice and virtue list. You know, we talk about, you know, put away greed, all these things, which is idolatry. But at the end of it, sever and bury, right? These things it says. But at the end of it, in verse 11, that whole little section in Colossians 3, it says, and then. Christ will be and in and will be in all things. So 1 Corinthians 15, 28 is filled out and explicated even more by Colossians 3, 11 and the reverse as well. Well, this, um, this I think, kind of gets us into chapter 3, which uh, 
is titled The End, subtitled World Becomes Trinity. (laughs) (laughs) And you started out and you say, accepting his contribution to the monothylite, monothylite controversy, Maximus is perhaps best known for his doctrine of deification. It, quote, represents the true climax of patristic tradition, unquote. So it makes sense that several scholars have studied this theme in great detail, crafting, as it were, veritable compendia of Maximus's thinking on the subject. And so this gets us into um, what you call Maximian deification and the perfection of creation as incarnation. Yes. And this is where as well, I kind of get into some of the stuff I've alluded to, which is, which is, I think in the, you know, um, one, one notable feature and I hadn't really seen it ever resolved, although it's kind of mentioned in, uh, in various places is I think in the chapter, I call it the aporia of grace, um, which is that, on the one hand, Maximus is pretty clear that the grace of deification is in no way anticipated by nature. And I'm going to sort of bracket here for now what I think he means by that, <laughs> by nature, uh, because I don't think there's always a, a single sense to it as he uses it. But let's just say he doesn't think there's something, if you just consider the human being's essence as a kind of abstract definition or an idea, there's nothing in it that automatically makes you think, uh, or anticipates that it's going to become God because it sounds like on that level, if humanity became God just by virtue, like it's inherent in humanity, it'd sort of obliterate the humanity itself in order to become God. So one way to say this is I think Maximus is existentializing, or you might say personalizing what it means for, for, uh, for one to become God by grace. So, but in any case, he does sound very like the the division seems very stark and absolute. The distinction, you know, not by nature but by grace. Otherwise, he says, I don't know how I would call it ecstasy, because you have to go out of your nature in love. So, in acts and true actual acts, existential encounter, you go out of your nature in love in ecstasy in order to become God. Which is, by the way, exactly how God relates to creation. He goes out of himself out of his nature in order to become the world. So there's this mutual built into the very dynamism and principle of creation is the mutual, almost erotic, ecstatic union in love, the marriage between God and creation, which makes, makes both one flesh. And that's Christ, the body of Christ. Right. So, so in this, that's that you see right there with that last thing I said, why it's sort of the culmination as well of God's uh, incarnation. God be and Maximus says this all the time. I documented it throughout that chapter, right? God is just to quote one that comes to mind, question 22.8. God is continually becoming incarnate in those who are worthy. Or to quote from Ambiguum 7, you know, the Jesus Christ is the essence of virtue. So that as you put on the virtues, love, justice, temperance, right? All that. You are, as it were, being embodied or incarnated. You are enfleshing, giving actual concrete life to he who is the essence of virtue, Jesus Christ. So, so that's a kind of, it's one, di- it's one movement, but the dynamic is sort of bivocal or two-directional. Um, on the one hand, I am becoming God, but that's only because God has already become human. And these sort of mutually enable each other. Maximus at one point even dares to say, 
they say that man and God are paradigms of one another. So this kind of reciprocity, this symmetry, which I linked before to Chalcedon's, the definition of Chalcedon is Christ is both God and man. You know, he's uh, he's both born of the father and of the mother, uh, the virgin, right? He, and so forth, where you, where you go through the sort of like, the sort of uh, symmetry of the of the uh, of the two sides, but he himself incorporates and therefore relates in himself the two sides of these um, of these reciprocal relations. So that is that is the structure and the dynamism and the culmination which reverberates all the way out to the whole of creation. Once again, even and especially, I think most clearly in deification, because it's the absolute height, the absolute extreme, and more or less unfathomable extreme of the completion of the union of God and the creature. Um, so that g- he even says, you remember in, in, in big M7, I think I, I quoted in there a few times, Maximus even dares to say that therefore through love, like real true canonic divine love, we quote humanize God to the same extent, right? That God deifies humanity. So this absolutely inseparable, interchange this beautiful exchange which is itself at the heart and the culmination of creation you write on page 96 incarnation demands that god by essence immutable and remaining in himself can yet really in person identify himself with lowly creatures in such a way that he who cannot be essentially completed by any finite creature is in fact realized in those very creatures Christologic demands that God show himself all the more transcendent by nature precisely to the extent that he becomes truly identical to created nature in person. The two distinct yet inseparable logics of nature and hypostasis prove once more to open new possibilities here for our deification. We do not receive merely the activities or qualities of the transcendent archetype in our own natural or finite mode, we receive the very archetype. The archetype condescends into the imitator to make the two the same, a claim already familiar from Ambiguum 41. Amazing here is how Maximus qualifies and presses into this identity. We do not, by grace, remain a mere simulacrum, but become the Lord himself. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and the next part there, right, the quote, if this is not too onerous for some to bear. <laughs> it's like he knows he's anticipating uh <laughs> this is going to sound like too much for a lot of, you know, some people are going to be like, okay, well, you you've gone you've gone too far. Um I think that's amazing for I discussed in the book you just the words he's using there. There's one there especially the mere simulacrum it, it, it alludes to a Dionysius's favorite word for deification, this making like. And Maximus is about that. I mean, he's, he accepts that. He never simply negates that kind of thing. It's just that he always is pressing for more. And it's one thing for me to like externally see, see, we always do this. Every time we think through this stuff and the paradox and the deep mysteries, we always, we want to externalize it all and make it kind of nice images that have clear associations because for us, clarity is like, um, it's kind of the end. Uh, but we've already predefined what clarity is. And so in this case, for example, I can say, you know, I know what it means to, to say I become a great imitator of Christ. 
that maybe I love like Christ does. Maybe I love my neighbor the way Christ has asked me and he himself did. Maybe even in a certain way, Christ shines through me if, I, if I've really progressed in the Christian life. Um, but what Maximus seems to be saying there is that even that is not the end. Because it's still imagining you and Christ as sort of mutually yet extrinsically or externally related um, as that which is imitated and kind of is up there, right? The archetype, which never moves, never changes, is always self-complete, never lacking. And it's kind of there, as it were, at a distance. And then, yes, maybe some of its qualities or its effects or, um, or influences are coming through on you. And but there's that still kind of external relation. And what he does in that passage, which is so remarkable, and there's some hints of Aristotle in there, but he says, he, he speaks of the of the archetype itself descending and condescending and, and the reception of the archetype into the imitator, not just some parts of it, but the the very presence, the padrusia, right? The, the presence of the person, uh, ultimately, because Christ is the archetype of the person in in you. And that's, again, look, uh, just just because I love to keep connecting it to the New Testament, because I think that's important to see that this stuff isn't just nice, wild thinking, but it illuminates Scripture itself. Because, look, we've already heard this in Colossians 1.27. The mystery of Christ is this, Christ in you. Christ in you. So Christ is in you, according to Colossians 1.27, and your life is in Christ, according to Colossians 3, you know, 2 through 4 or whatever. And so that's already that mutuality, that reciprocity, that you're not simply external to one another. You are internal to one another. That's the deepest mystery of the incarnation. And the thing is, is that this is all happening by grace. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so uh, you write on page 104, the aporia of deifying grace comes to this. Grace is a power primordially present in human nature, yet it activates a completely supernatural process and state. Could you elaborate yes, on that? Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I that guess. word, and that word aporia too. Yeah. So the aporia is like, or, you know, in it's the, the Greek etymology there is like an impasse. It's, it's a sort of like, it's a kind of, um, you know, it's a point where you can't, you don't know how to think through it. It seems like just a kind of contradiction. And on that level, if, if you're reading Maximus' text, it kind of can seem that way. I've already mentioned the first part of that aporia, right? Is, you know, you by nature, me by nature, David. Like, we don't have we don't have any sort of power just by the fact that we're human that would uh, give us sort of the ability to become God, to be deified, to be saved, to be united. And, and so grace, it has to happen by grace, not by nature, because it takes the form of this ecstatic going out of your nature. Okay, that's fine. So we have grace and nature. Almost sounds a little bit like the Thomists, our dear friend the Thomists, like to say, you know, the sort of two tiers and this realm. Well, okay, yes, I'd right. like to, this, this is a quote that <laughs> I thought so severe is Maximus about grace's supernatural character that some of his statements might make even the most stolid, two-tiered Thomist blush. <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly. Because, you know, they'll, they'll want to, depending on which part of the Thomist tradition you're talking about, but they, you know, they want to they wanna find some, so they'll talk about the ob- obediential potency. It's like, okay, no, it's not part of your nature, but there is some kind of thing that anticipates or some influence that, and so in, in any case, sometimes, you know, these passages that I discuss in that section, 
Maximus seems to be like, has no time for it, right? Like absolutely in no way does human nature qua nature as such in any way anticipate whatsoever the power to be become God. And so that sounds like even he's outdoing the two tier Thomists in his kind of the severity of his distinction. Um, however, the other part of the aporia and what makes it kind of an actual aporia on the surface. And it seems like almost oh, hold on. Are you just contradicting yourself? Is that, as I say there, as you read, he also thinks so that this very same grace that so not by nature, but by grace, but he thinks that the grace, which he does call a power, by the way, a dynamis. So we are talking now about a power, a supernatural power, the potential to become God. He thinks that that is actually universal and ubiquitous in all of creation and all creatures, quote, kind of from birth. And that's a that's where I think sometimes these this this nature language becomes a little ambiguous or even equivocal. And I think sometimes that explains the difference between like my emphasis and then maybe someone like David Hart's, where where what Maximus is saying is that yet if what you mean by nature, if something like is something a little more colloquial, like you might say, you know, look, I'm sort of intro- introverted by nature. Like I was just ever since birth, I just kind of had this tendency or disposition. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a kind of generic way to speak. I understand what you mean there. And if that's all we mean by by nature, then clearly Maximus thinks grace is quote unquote by nature. Right? In the sense that it's there from your origin, from the from the very emergence of your of your, you know, uh, of your existence, your being. Yeah, you write on page uh, 109, grace names a power equally implanted in all. Absolutely. And in Bigum 10, I think it's around section 46, he's discussing Melchizedek. I'm sure I discussed it in that section yeah. where he where he says to the reader, do not think that you, because he says Melchizedek is sort of the paradigm of deification because he has no beginning. He's without origin. He's he's like, un, he becomes uncreated, he even says. Um, and he says, don't think that you, just because you're not the great Melchizedek, that you can't become another Melchizedek or another Abraham or Isaac or Patriot. Right? Well, because I just love it. This, this idea of a grace infused nature. Absolutely. And it's exactly what he says next, because gr- the creator has implanted the dynamis, the power of grace, of, of deifying grace to become uh, uh, deified in all of creation. So you reading this text right now, you might think, well, you know, I can't do that because that's a gift that God gave Melchizedek specially and uniquely that maybe I can't access at all. And Maximus anticipates that thought in you and says, no, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's like I've been doing this grace and nature thing. Yeah, sure. They're absolutely different from one respect. But don't think that that means they're separate in fact, in reality. And that's the point, right? They are not abstractly and considered according to their essence or definition, they are absolutely distinct, but distinction doesn't mean separation. So yes, grace and uh, nature does not anticipate deifying grace in principle, like abstractly by definition, precisely because what makes you a creature rather than the creator is a definition, a distinction, right? You had a beginning and so forth. Uh, You depend on God. Um, so there's in in the very our initial definitions of God and the creature they can't on that level be alighted together without obliterating one or the other. This is the whole problem of Christology. However, that does not mean for Maximus that in actual reality, like in life, 
like in the action, the activity of creation. God has created in such a way that what is to you, but quote unquote by nature, not possible, is already implanted. That power is already implanted in you, but it's called grace by from from creation or like as as constitutive of creation itself so in that sense yes by your from your very origin if you want to use by nature that loose way from your origin yes grace is always already there always already there waiting to be born in fact at one point he's, he calls it just it's the word of god who he co- calls quote the seed of the good who is in all right so in that sense Absolutely. Grace is already, nature is already engraced. Grace is already implanted is a word he likes to use. Implanted like a seed in all of creation. And it's why he can say that seed, by the way, is no different than the seed of uh, Abraham that that, uh, Paul talked about in Galatians. It's Christ. And he's awaiting as your, as in potentia, right? Potentially. He's awaiting as like a power in you to be brought forth in your life. In other words, to be born in and through you. Uh, and so once again, we're back at the uh, creation as incarnation. The, you write on page 111 that the principal point for now is that grace's deifying potential already indwells everything from creation's dawn. Two more themes everywhere linked to grace further substantiate this account, faith and virtue. Consider faith first. Faith for Maximus is always a power. And then a little later on, you say, therefore, quote, faith is not outside us. I guess that's Maximus, but already, unquote, but already given within the intellect awaiting actualization. Absolutely. There's also a point. um, He makes that point about faith like you just read and also about virtue, uh, which in Bigium 7, he said is Christ. Christ is the essence of virtue. But there's actually an explicit point. almost to the point where some people have speculated, and I don't, I don't know if this can be proven that Maximus maybe had been familiar with some of Augustine's writings uh, because he spent like 20 years in North Africa, or, you know, not at the same, obviously he's centuries after Augustine, but perhaps Augustine's influence could have been there. And if he had some access to some translations or something, I think that's all speculative. We don't really know, but nevertheless, this moment causes some people to like kind of raise their eyebrow because there's there's a dispute that we have the record of, and the bishop at one point I'm not going to get into why he's making the point, but at some point he basically depicts virtue, or you might say grace, this sort of bringing out you know virtue in us as almost like an external um, force that comes from outside of us. And elevates our nature. Now, Maximus has no problem with the idea of grace elevating nature, but he explicitly says in that dispute with Pyrrhus, he says, he says, it is not as if virtue is alien to us, comes to us from outside of us. It is already within. So the same point he makes about faith, he makes about virtue, which is the general point he's always making about grace, which is when God created you, he didn't do it from a distance. He himself has infused himself already in you from your very principles. The logos is the logi, right? The principles. The word of God is the principles of all creation, which means the person of Christ is already in you awaiting to be born. So we're back again, Colossians 127, right? The mystery of Christ is Christ in you. He's already in you. He's in you. He's waiting for you to respond. So oh, page 113, you write, uh, grace lies latent everywhere and then um later on on that page grace inhabits nature as the personal word the condition or hexis 
of the deified soul is, in fact, Christ's personal stamp, his stability, his character, himself. He hypostasizes what he experiences. Oh, yeah. So there's so much there. But I think the simplest way to put it is this. Once again, we always want to separate out into discrete images things that are profound for us. Okay, that, let's just say that's a working uh, tendency we have. And so maybe you want, want to say something like, um, okay, the word of God is kind of prior to and above Jesus. Um, and yes, he, yes, the word became Jesus. That's like an episode. You know, this is the thing that Father Bear always criticizes, the episode in the life of the word. But then we kind of do the same thing with like grace. Like, okay, maybe... Maybe the word comes to us and then and also by the Holy Spirit comes to us and and then sort of takes up residence. But that's like a different, almost discreet act. Like he's interacting with you here and now through this sacrament, through this whatever, this person, this love of neighbor. But one of the, what I'm trying to get at there is that the personal word who is also Jesus Christ, he himself becomes, as it were, the bridge between even his own human historical life, death, and resurrection and ascension and all of creation, because he doesn't cease to be Jesus when he's the word in you. It's that he's the word in you also as Jesus. And then to complete the reciprocity, he is also Jesus of Nazareth with the entirety of all creatures in him. You start to see that the the deep sense of recapitulation and the idea of salvation as recapitulation and so forth, right? Because he is stitching together. You said earlier, right? Like another human being springing all together. He's stitching together even discrete space, time, moments, and agents throughout history. So like Christ is in you, David, but he's in you as the one who has been crucified, right? Laid in the tomb, gone down to hell, resurrected and ascended. And he he did all those things as well, already being in you, so to speak. So he's bringing all these things together in the one mystery. Well, as far as the idea of, of ascending, uh, rising upward, you write on page 118, our ascent cannot occur except as an ascent into the divinity already innately present in us. Right. The word initially dwells in us that we might in him. There exists no divinity, no divine and eternal life that is not precisely the word dwelling within. Yes, exactly. So that's that's a further sort of elaboration. It's it's a uh, again, I'm trying to mess with and I think Maximus is trying to mess with our our simple ideas and images where it's like, yeah, as I ascend, that means I'm sort of going up. <laughs> like the, that's the spatial image. Like I'm kind of going up. And once again, that already assumes God is out there somewhere, right? But if he, right, if the depths of divine love, if there really is no place I can go to escape the love of God, neither heights nor depths, right, angels nor demons, that means that the self-same word who has who is in hell, according to right some parts of the tradition, the descent to hell, is the word that is in me, is the word that was born of Mary, is the word that was crucified, is the word that's ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father even now that this word is himself, the ubiquity, almost as it were, the perpetual and total condition of all conditions and events and situations and states, bringing them all together, that is to say, to use Ephesians language, recapitulating all things in heaven and on earth in himself. And so that, 
that is that's uh that's what I so yes when I ascend it's fine as a spatial metaphor in the sense of like I'm getting better or progressing but in, but it's also and importantly just as true to say that that into which or he into which I ascend is himself already descended in me such that I actually become more me as I ascend into him you see we're back to this reciprocal exchange thing which is always at the heart on page 123, you write, unlike anyone before him, Maximus makes perichoresis the intractable and characteristic logic of the deified creature's concrete condition. He summons the technical term to describe that state in both its verbal and nominal forms. A creature, a creature's deification occurs through the grace of the spirit and manifests God alone acting within it, not Maximus carefully clarifies in such a way that the create that the creature's natural power and activity vanish rather God in a manner befitting his goodness wholly interpenetrates all who are worthy unconfused union sometimes thrown about abstractly in the literature retains its exact Christological meaning even in our deification so could you talk a little bit about perichoresis but also the idea that 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 the journey towards deification is not the journey towards unconfused union. Right. Yeah. So I think this is, this is critical and it, that is the technical term. And just as a point of uh, his, like historical significance, Maximus, though he's not the first one to use the word perichoresis, which I'll define in a second um, uh, to describe de the deified state, the deified creature. He is though the first one to really make it, um, uh, basically a systematic way of describing this, this entire, you know, eschatology, this, this whole, um, account of deification he uses it all the time. It's pretty unique, which had been, that's, that's been noted before. Perichoresis, of course, kind of comes from, it's got a long history, but say just in the Christian tradition, its significance really emerges with the uh, conceptions of the Trinity and different accounts of the Trinity, right? Because you've got, without getting to all the details, let's just say, um, um, you know, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they are one God. How can they be one God if they seem to be three, right? And so uh, lots of people wrote on this, and Gregor of Nyssa wrote a book called On Not Three Gods, for example, where he says, well, what makes them one God is that even though there are three persons, they effect one act. It's not like each one has their own sort of act that's personal and distinctive to them, and then it kind of like coalesces into some weird hybrid threefold act. It's that they all together only ever produce one act, activity, or we might say realization, one reality. So they're one God. Um, but, and then as, as sort of things progress, another way to speak about this is perichoresis or interpenetration. As Maximus likes to say, the whole father is in the whole son. The whole son is in the whole father. The whole spirit is in both of them. He's always doing this. Whole is in whole, holy, like W-H-O-L-L-Y, you know, and it's like, like, like there is no, just because they are in some crucial way distinct, doesn't at all mean in fact they are distinct or separated or divided off from each other. They are wholly interpenetrating each other always and completely, which makes them one. Now, what I, that's, that's fine, and it's difficult to understand, and there's m many more questions to pursue there. But nevertheless, it kind of makes sense to say, like, I can see how that would work as it were on the horizontal level of divinity. Like, okay, I can see Father, Son, Spirit in some kind of mysterious paradoxical way um, 
as it were, accomplish or are or exist as they are one God because they wholly interpenetrate. But what I think is remarkable with Maximus's thought and where it relates here directly to deification is that because one, the, the one, the son in the middle of the Trinity, who is interpenetrated by father and spirit himself becomes, as it were, in that vertical movement downward, becomes a creature, his own creature and remains the son remains the word. Um, he has now taken that mode, that divine mode of existing, which is interpenetrating, which is just infinite love, really. It's, it's, a, it's an elaborate way of understanding First John's God is love. Um, but he's taken that pen, uh, perichoresis and he's, as it were, tipped it on its side so that now it becomes a vertical reality, which seems impossible if you're just thinking in hierarchical terms of like, God's up there, the world's down here. God is cause, we're effect. God is high, you are low, right? But when God in the person of the Son becomes lowest on the hierarchy, even as he remains the highest, now he's made the top of the hierarchy and the the lowest on the hierarchy interpenetrate in precisely the same way that the Trinity itself, as it were, horizontally, Father, Son, and Spirit interpenetrate whole and whole holy. So when we get to, when we sort of get to the completion of creation, which is the deification of creation, which is the incarnation of the word always in all things, for him, it's all the same. It's all one single act. When you get to that culminating condition, it bears the exact same mode or way or manner of existing as the Trinity itself does. And that's that's why he, he wants to speak about the deified as as interpenetrating with like, the actual or existential condition. Now, crucial then to the, the second point you raised is this. All of this stuff, just as in any monistic sort of metaphysics or pantheistic, you know, so-called pantheistic or even panentheistic, people get really, um, I, I think, especially in the West, they get a little bit, um, let's say, anxious about the obliteration of personal identity. Um, if we're going to become one with God and God will be all in all and all this stuff, like, where does that leave me? What, do I just, do I, uh, in, to use Evagrius' terms, do I, do all of my distinctive qualities, quote, dissolve in the infinite ocean of divine being, right? And there's many expressions we all are probably heard. Well, of okay, let me just, uh, the, yeah. let me just bring a modern one in uh, when I was growing up, um, Star Trek. You know, right. and every time, and every time they would beam down, you know, and even they they even get this in the next generation. You know, problems with uh, there's one episode where you get two different Rikers, but you, <laughs> the idea that you dematerial that you're dematerialized, right. and then rematerialized was always uh was always kind of spooky, and so you're going along in the book here. And then you ask a question of yourself, which is the same thing we're talking about. You write on page 127. All this raises a major objection to my thesis, though. If hypostatic identity grounds modal perichoresis and our de- deified state, too, doesn't our deification imply our personal obliteration? Exactly. And I have a few, I, I end up discussing a few different things here to qualify the question, you know, let's question a few assumptions. But at the end of the day, where I, where I kind of, I think, make the positive contribution or where I see Maximus doing so is in the application of this notion of perichoresis. Because just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are so totally identical, essentially, and if his essence is, is his existence, so that they're really and totally one, just as their oneness does not obliterate 
their distinction as Father, Son, and Spirit, neither does it need to be the case that my oneness with Christ and his identity with me, that, that reciprocal identity we've been talking about, need to imply the obliteration of my person. Now, here's the tough thing here, and I talk about this in the chapter. Um, what is that exactly? What does that mean, right? And Maximus is very clear, and some might think this is a cop-out, but I think I don't see actually how else it could go, um, that this, the actual state, like what we're talking about here, what my ref- words are referring to here, when I talk about holy interpenetrating, the, you know, God and the world are interpenetrating, and they are one, and yet they don't remain obliterated. Um, just as it is in the Trinity when we talk about these things, conceptually, you do hit sort of rough edges, and you can only, as he says, know truly what it's like by experience. That's what he says. And so this this lifts the, as it were, resolution out of the realm of the abstract or the con- simply conceptual, and instead says this, there is a resolution. It does not sacrifice your personal identity, nor though does it sacrifice your identification with the word and therefore with the Trinity and the word. But um, but the actual resolution, like the way in which those two things can be both true at once and must be both true at once, is something that won't be resolved abstractly, but will only be resolved in fact, in act, right? In actuality, in the actuality of love, which in, which in the end is always more concrete than any idea. Well, he, and this is a uh, you note know, on page 136, and in Christ's body, which is one with itself and with all other entities, exactly because his hypostasis is the identity of his parts. Those parts preserve their whole integrity and interpenetrate one another. Indeed, as they become both more themselves and more he who sustains them by by subsisting as them, they must so pervade each other as they are gathered together with their head and become one flesh. And there you're referring to Colossians 1, 18 and Ephesians 5, 30 to 31. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so that, so, so much, so much of, of Maximus's thought, and hopefully this has come through thus far, um, is trying to, you know, I think we can work with simple binaries like, uh, are, do you approach theology and Christian faith as like a more like a mystic or like a rationalist, you know, or, or are you more pragmatic or theoretical, right? And in one one way, I hope the whole book, although it kind of leans theoretical, just for the, the sort of the genre of, of the book I, I wrote, um, I hope it's I hope it's clear that I mean to resist any of that uh, this sort of either or, and that Maximus himself is one uh, where he is, I think pretty familiar and intimately familiar with sort of the deepest mystical, um, you know, kind of uh, connections and unions with Christ, even in this life. But yet he's also brilliant, philosophically precise and logical, etc. Nevertheless, I think it's hopefully it's been clear that the thrust of Maximus's thought is always to refuse to um, to give up on what seemed to us two sides of an aporia which can only be resolved by choosing one over the other. And so, um, so I think, I think here we get another example, like how could I as a lowly creature ever be relate to God as anything other than the absolute superior? I mean, we all know this, right? 
in life. Like it's hard to, for your boss to be your friend, you know, that kind of idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's hard to, you know, even with your parents, certainly you know, your teenagers and, and you're trying to relate to your parents. And then of course that changes over time and you become adults. But even then there's always a sense, you're always my dad, you're always my mom or whatever. Um, and so how much more is that sort of a difficulty to imagine that God, who is the ground and goal of all things, could be, as it were, relating to me as a lover or a friend or even an equal? How is that How is that even really imaginable? Um, and so I think that's one way that we usually have to choose. We, we usually think we have to choose one or the other. Well, maybe I'll just asymptotically approach God in union, but I'm always subservient to him. I'm always less than him. I'm never really fully God. I'm not actually deified. I'm just God-like. Maximus is not willing to compromise on that, as we've seen. Um, he thinks it's, he's, I mean, one of his famous principles called the tantum quantum principle is that we will become God to the same extent and degree that God became human. So that's, that's a, that's a pretty remarkable and daring thing to say, but that means, that means just as much as God was human in Christ, we will be God in Christ. Okay. So you he can't give up on that at the same time. There's also this other sort of seeming impossibility. How can I relate to all of creation and the vast magnitude of creation in the cosmos, or, or whether it's spatially or historically, like in time? But you notice what happens there is in this act, the act of the incarnation is always overcoming our abstractions and our abstract limits about that incarnation and that event, such that it's always already ahead of our anticipations and our aporias and our either or dilemmas. And so in, and so when we do that, you get these remarkable you got these remarkable culminating points, which can yes be thought about. So it's not abs- it's not just totally sort of vacuous mysticism. It's still it's still rigorous, but but nevertheless, it is a kind of mysticism. It's a hard won mysticism, and you get stuff again stated already in the New Testament. But stuff like you know because Christ has has unified and identified Himself with us in the Church, and then ultimately all creation. Now I can have this other relationship to things across space and time that I didn't even know. So, for example, in Romans. If one suffers, in Corinthians, if one suffers, one member of the body suffers, all suffer. And if one rejoices, all rejoice. Again, I think we usually think of that as like kind of a at a distance, a nice, mm-hmm. right? Oh, well, okay, I- that's good for you, right? But there's a deeper mystical sense in which, no, like what you accomplish as a member of the body of Christ is just as much my accomplishment and then vice versa, the sufferings as well. And we're all in solidarity in that deep way. Well, this, I think, gets us then to your fourth chapter, which is entitled The Whole, which I understand was not a part of your original dissertation. But you wanted to have a reflection on this, the the, the whole. And and I think this is kind of what you're, what you're getting to here. You write on page 144, um, universal and particular eternity and time, even theology and economy, these unfold according to the reciprocal logic of the God-world relation. This logic reveals that our true beginning and end need not and indeed should not appear in a manner subject to time, that the historical incarnation eventuates in the middle of this world's seemingly senseless flux of phenomena should not therefore disqualify it from being identified as God's singular and true act of creation. Uh, Rather, we should come to expect precisely this sort of peculiarity. Um, 
Talk a little bit more about that, the whole and how the incarnation eventuates in the middle of the world, seemingly senseless, senseless flux of phenomena. So, yeah, it goes back once again to a kind of, as it were, critique of not our penchant and love of narrative, like sequence, like first this, then that, then that. Okay, I can see the beginning, the middle, the end. I can see how that goes. Like lines are uh, you know, at least at least ones that have points on them are um, are eminently understandable to us. They're kind of like second nature. We can see it. I understand it. But um, what that tends to do is make us think that we can therefore already sort of anticipate the limits for what the whole is like. When I say the whole, I mean the entirety of God's creative act. So again, recently that uh, that um, that article has been critical <laughs> of me that came out recently makes this sort of like, raises a criticism. Says like, oh, this sounds like a kind of Kantian critique of uh, of of the very idea of creation. Um, whereas I think, you know, one who has, who has been born, died and resurrected in the middle of history saying of himself that he's the beginning of God's work. That's really where the critique occurs. It wasn't with Kant. It was with Jesus. And, um, and, and if he's going to say that he's the beginning of God's work, and then we say, you know, we would say now from our perspective, perhaps like, well, look, looks like God's been working for billions of years. This, this stuff's pretty old around here. What do you mean you just got started working on creation? Well, that's because the only reason why that can seem like a real problem is because we've already sort of implicit, we've assumed that we know what it means for God to create. We know what it means for God to act. We know what it means, and we, and we used convenient terms like ad extra and ad intra. We know what it means, the difference between those. We know how they relate the God's interior life with God's external act of giving life to, to the world. And so it seems just inherently for us contradictory or at least obscure to say, well, I mean, what do you mean that this historical event of the incarnation is the beginning of creation itself, the beginning and end, as Maximus has said, and you quoted earlier. And so what I try to do is turn that kind of criticism and objection on its head and say, actually, what we typically give ourselves to saying about uh, the God's creative act in respect with respect to time, we usually do it in negative terms or in terms of rejections or re like, so, so for example, if, as long as we're not deists, my daughter who was born almost two years ago, I think most Christians would say, yeah, she's, she's created from nothing too, just like you were however many years ago. And you don't have to reveal that, <laughs> but, um, or like the whole world was right. However many billions of years ago, most people are, uh, if, you know, they don't think about it too much, but they're like, yeah, I mean, in a way, like God creates every moment out of nothing or, you know, and like all new children are also created from nothing. Right. But uh, and so we 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 are saying like what we're saying there is that, OK, after all, God's creative act isn't subject to time the way we experience time and order and the, this after this and this and this and this. But what I want to say is a step further is saying, in fact, so we kind of already should, if we reflect a little bit, we should be primed for the idea that God's, the revelation and the manifestation of God's whole act of creation really shouldn't just simply follow the rules of sequence of temporality of one after the other. It should be more bizarre, in other words, a little more peculiar. And what I'm, what I'm then saying is that, so when we then come to positively state that the world was created, in the middle of the world's history, which sounds inherently ridiculous. Actually, it might be, if, if this is true, 
or something like it is true, that actually might be, we, we maybe should have expected something as bizarre as that, which defies our expectations. And so in this world that seems to be one thing after another, one phenomenon after another, and we can sort of trace it back in causal chains or associated chains, and we say that's the true beginning, it's just what happened earliest. Well, really the true beginning, the capital B beginning, is just what happens actually, like what's most true, not necessarily what's most prior and so now we're getting into, we're upsetting our expectations a little bit about what creation is and how it must go. And so ultimately with Maximus, where I want to go is say, that's why there's really not only no problem with saying that the world in, in the deepest sense was created in the middle of the world, the world history and Jesus and through Jesus of Nazareth through the incarnation. But in fact, we maybe should have expected something as wild and seemingly counterintuitive as that. Now, another issue that comes up in all of this is the issue of, of freedom, free will. Uh, so if this has already kind of all happened, if it's all happening to me, some people get concerned about, well, what choice, you know, what choice do I have in this? And then on bottom page 147, going into 148, you were writing about that freely elected obedience embodied through ascetic practice and concrete acts of love renders generative grace entirely present in actuality. It is not difficult to see to see that and how the movement from the first to the second stage requires free will, virtue, and knowledge are rational activities. In cooperation with them, grace transforms voluntarily the entire free choice of the one being born so that it conforms to the God who gives birth. Mm -hmm. So could you unpack that, how free will and free choice and freedom works in with all of this? Yes. So once again, we're, we're at a moment where we think, um, the only way my freedom can have any significance and my choices have any significance is if, is if the future as it were is utterly undetermined. Um, even, even though we don't want to always say this, but some explicitly do, some more implicitly try to get around it and make qualifications so that it doesn't sound so stark. Almost even to God. Like the only way I can really I can really be free is if, I'm, if, if my future acts are independent of God's own like knowledge for some people or God's determining influence for others or however you want to put it. Well, just to, just to you know, while all of this, uh, all of this that we're talking about may strike some people as kind of liberal or progressive my my seminary was uh background was a very liberal progressive seminary and in and process theology was very popular yeah. so so this idea that we're talking about now uh would not have been received well right um yeah and it's and so one of the one of the things i think you can do with max i don't do explicitly in the book but i do think it's clear like somebody like yourself who's had training and you're familiar with sort of, sort of the lay of the land you'll be able to surmise from probably from your reading is that one really interesting and constructive thing Maximus's vision can do here is that he kind of, he allows us to refuse again, the either or dilemma. Like, do I need to, do I need to think God, do I need to be a process theologian and think God himself is sort of coming to know or developing, even if he knows like 99.9% certainty what will happen, but he still is sort of progressing in his knowledge and some people think you have to, yeah, we just have to say that because 
Um, otherwise, he's just determining everything ahead of time. And then, of course, there's the more quote unquote classical theists who want to reject that and say, no, 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 God's omniscient. He's perfect in knowledge, which includes past, present, and future. And so, of course, he knows the future, and it's it's even as immediate to him as the present is to you right now. Um, and so, they wouldn't want to they wouldn't want to concede that. But then it does become difficult, you know, to kind of explain, except abstractly, how in fact God could a not not only his knowledge wouldn't determine that, although I think there's a way to do it, but then b how um, how it would count as God's act. That's the real problem, I think. Like, how is it? How is it that my future acts, my free acts, count as God's acts, even if they're acts against God? And then here we would, you know, classical theists would want to say, well, you know, actually, evil and sin isn't really an act, and they'll do the privation, you know, theory of evil thing. I'm not sure that really, really helps in the ultimate analysis. But I won't go down that. It's a little too, too in the weeds. But I'll just say this with Maximus. Again, the paradox is this. Since God's act of creation is itself the creation of time and therefore not conditioned by the rules of time as we perceive them, then in a really, again, the sort of the heart of the mysteries, this reciprocity, this mutual incorporation, this perichoresis, right? That becomes true even for time and therefore even for our acts of freedom, um, which insofar as they are good, do contribute synergistically to God's own act of creation at the unfolding of creation. Like we do contribute our own personal right manifestations and incarnation of the good to the whole, to the end. And yet at the same time, it's only because God himself is creating such a whole that, that he gives us the conditions to even, including freedom to even enact anything. And the kind of, so this gets to some deep waters, but basically, it's if we thought strictly in terms of process theology, or if we think strictly in terms of rejecting process theology for like above the line view, both of them are treating the line as the reference point. And what I think Maximus is doing is saying God's creation is so much more profound than that, that it can at once be the condition, almost like the prior condition for your acts of freedom, which make them make them really your acts and your freedom. But at the same time, it has already, as it were, incorporated your own acts of freedom into the realization of the whole. And that both are true at once. <laughs> and so, yeah, I don't know. There, there's much more to say there, but that's the, that's the general orientation. You can kind of get the, the well, this gets into, this gets into um, uh, origin, uh, some of origins ideas about, you know, where did we all come from and um, how does that work? And um, on page 158, um, you write, uh, here I wish to consider the implications of Maximus's broader understanding of creaturely motion for the fall. In the opening sections of the seventh ambiguum, Maximus crafts an entire polemic designed to refute the originist thesis of a primordial henad of rational beings co-natural with God, which inexplicably fell into motion away from God, away from unity, and into the diverse and variegated bodies God graciously generated as this corporeal world. And this kind of gets us into the territory of an, an initial controversy 
that has long surrounded discussions about Christian universalism and that's origin and whether or to what extent he had some understanding of prior existence of souls in God in some way. And then it seems here that Maximus is uh, is referring to that and wanting to make his own statements about it. Yeah, and I'll sidestep the question of whether or not Origen, you know, Origen himself held this story. That's one that scholars still debate, because um, there's always the, as you know, there's always the question and origin of between what he thought and then you know what his later expositors or representate, you know, people make representations of him actually depicted. Um, so we'll just we'll skip that and just say the, the Maximus repeats the story like two or three times. So at least for him it looked like there was an influential story that is exactly what you just read and, and adumbrated, which is, which is, a, but look, notice, this is why I think the origins tradition is so interesting because whether or not origin held whatever he ended up believing, he does at least set the problem straight up front and center. It's the problem of sequence. Once again, is the beginning simply the first right prior to this world? And yes, there's a way in which we have to begin that way. You have to speak that way to even apprehend what we're talking about. But is it the case that there was like a state or I don't know, a, a, a duration of some kind prior? And that was this perfect hinad, this, that, that just means like unity or oneness of all the rational beings with God. And yet somehow they fell away. And then this introduces the middle of the story. And God, God, as it were, reacts to the fall of the intellects by creating the world you and I inhabit now with all this various bodies and, you know, diversity and manifold and kind of almost chaotic, uh, Matt, you know, built in, there's a, there's an element of chaos built into matter itself, which makes this a world of generation and flux and so forth. And that's the middle. And this is where like our history and the story, but then in the, into the middle comes Christ, the one soul and intellect that never fell. Prior, it was he was, was part of the Hineb, but he never fell. And then he kind of fuses, as it were, with the word. He's so intensely, more intensely hangs on to Christ precisely, or to the word because he doesn't fall. And somehow this allows the word through that soul to come into the midst of our chaos and then pull us back in terms of providence. This is what they would say. And providence is pulling us back into the union, a kind of restoration of that primordial unity. Um. If you're going to reject that story, which which a lot of people did, including St. Gregory of Nyssa, he had a different way uh, to do it, um, and it's including St. Maximus. Nevertheless, you still have to address the question of, okay, well, if that's not the way it unfolded in a simple sequence, then you have to concede, though, that God's act of creating the world, like the beginning of a sequence— is already, in a sense, anticipating the entire series that's going to unfold after that act. So again, we're playing with this paradoxical, he's not the act of creation is not subject to time, and yet it does begin time, and so there is a beginning temporally, and then there's the whole history. But God is already reacting, as it were, to the, to the whole in order to bring about the whole, right? And so this is built in to the, to the very dynamism, the very logic or inner inner intelligibility of, uh, of, um, of the act of creation itself. And so I think um, that tradition forces that problem right up front. And what I think Maximus does to kind of move it down the road is he sees again with the new Testament. Well, hold on a second. If our true beginning and end, if the beginning, the true beginning and the true end of God's work is actual act of creation 
has already come upon us in the you know in these in the in these latter ages. That's Jesus Christ. That's the incarnation. That's the life, death, and resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Then that maybe is the true beginning from which God's work has uh, has 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 unfolded, even again counterintuitively, even towards what what we would consider prior in history to to that act to the incarnation and the thing is like look most christians we kind of already concede this like if you're a christian who thinks that even like anyone was saved prior to jesus and yet you also have to say that they're saved through the crucifixion of jesus then somehow whatever your theory is you you think that jesus the event that happened in the first century right ad had effects or ramifications or influence upon events and people and souls, living persons that came in time prior to Christ, sometimes by centuries. So we already know, we already kind of admit, we just don't think about very often that we already, we, we already have this sort of commitment to bizarre things with time and right. Christ going beyond time and therefore creation sort of be going beyond time. Right. So, well, speaking of uh, going beyond time, <laughs> we, we, we have been going for almost two hours now. So, I think it's uh, it's good that we kind of wrap things up, but I didn't want to take I didn't want to take a long time to to really kind of go through the whole flow of the book, and so people can kind of see um, what the journey will uh, you know what kind of journey they're going to be going on when they get into the book, and uh, I'll just close on page one seventy three. You write the great paradox of this world is that it is not yet the world. Yes. And that is the great paradox. Um, that is where, you know, some will see like, wow, by the time you're done with these terms, like creation and all this stuff, I almost don't recognize it anymore. And there's a sense of kind of losing our grip on reality. Right. Which uh, to which I guess I plead guilty. It's um, one way I've said it is this. and I don't remember if I wrote it in the book or not, but I think it's a clear way. Nothing less then the full expression of God's will would count as his work. Like you kind of, we kind of know this by analogy. I could say if I'm like a, you're an artist and you have some picture you want to paint and it's kind of really vivid to you in your head and you go to paint it on the canvas and maybe something weird happens. Like in the, you know, it's a several day thing and like you hit your arm or somehow you get injured, but you need to finish this anyway. It makes it a lot harder for you to finish your, your kind of, you're kind of limited in a certain way. And basically for, uh, for various reasons, it doesn't quite come out the way you wanted it to. There's a, now, is that your work? Sure it is. But there's a certain sense, even in this analogy, that we can kind of see that, look, it's not the real full work of the artist because there were other extraneous circumstances that kind of, kind of limited the full expression, as it were, of what the artist willed to make, to bring into being, to, to incarnate even, I'd say. To, to realize in, in material. And, um, and I think a lot of Christians have more or less made peace with that. That's the way God, God is similarly in a position where he's constrained by prior and maybe even sort of external factors that he can't control, which I think is a little bit dangerous place to be. But nevertheless, we sort of make our peace with it because we look around the world and here's the point. We assume that what we see is exactly what we get. Like that's, that is it. This is creation. Not so for Origen, for St. Gregory of Nyssa, and for St. Maximus, because any phenomenon 
that does not correspond to what God's idea or really his will, the logos of that thing is, is not yet the full expression of his will, of the true, of the good, and of the beautiful, and therefore is not yet truly a completed work. I mean, when Paul says, he who completed a good work in you will bring it to completion, that automatically means that the work, yes, the process is is a part of the work, but it's not yet the complete work until it's brought to completion. And so we should already sort of sense that in a kind of paradoxical way, God's creation isn't finished until it's finished, right? It's not finished until it fully is everything that he wills it and wants it in his love to be. And so that's, that would mean, as Maximus says, that this world is sort of like, he says, it's like, it's, it's like, it's as if we're in a womb swathed in darkness and not only us, but also the word lies dormant, dormant, latent in the womb. In other words, gestating, waiting to be born. And it's only with the birth of the word in the world that you get the birth of the world through the word who is, who is through whom all things are made. And that is what, when you can finally say this counts as God's world. This is God's creation. At the end, will the world truly be the world? Right now, when we look around, yes, we see seeds of it. Yes, you see glimpses breaking through moments of beauty, love, compassion, kindness, truth. But until all of that is exuding it, as it were, as the as the completed body of Christ, as another human being, as you read earlier, right? Until all of that is manifesting, revealing in the glory of Christ, it is not yet the true world, the true right, intention of, of the creator. And so until he is incarnate, always and in all things, accomplishing and having accomplished the mystery of his incarnation, it is not yet uh, fully his creation. Well, um, you know, this conversation that we're having right now, to me, seems very normal. Um, um, I wouldn't say it's mundane. It's interesting, you know, but to me, this is the kind of Christianity that I'm used to thinking about and uh, understanding and, and working in. But also what's still shocking to me is that this way of understanding and expressing our Christian faith is so totally foreign to <laughs> a lot of a lot of people. They don't even know that these kinds of conversations that are happening, that somebody like Maximus Confessor ever had the kind of thoughts that he had. But it's it, it just makes me feel good to know that I don't have to leave the Christian tradition to find profoundly beautiful theology and philosophy. I don't have to, I don't have to make it up. It's already there. But the fun thing is, is that we have full permission to continue to reflect on it and think about it and try to articulate it in our own way and our own time right now, which is, I think what you're doing, which is what I'm having a lot of fun doing on this, on this podcast. So I just want to thank you for, uh, I guess um, uh, being able to have a fresh engagement with Maximus and to read him and to help bring his ideas out in a, in a way that, that helps us, I guess, to further our own thinking. And um, I just really appreciate your scholarship. I think before you said right now, you're only a, a stay at home dad for um, four girls. 
But I think that what you're doing is you're putting out into the world something that they can believe, that other people can believe, and it can help them to thrive in the midst of this world in such a positive, um, positive way. So I hope that you won't be ever be discouraged in the effect that your scholarship can have, even though it's not residing in the academy right now. And I have some experience with the academy. I'm not not taught it. My wife uh, is involved with it, and you know that the academy has its own limits. It's it's an institution, um, and I think that you know maybe your voice is a little like Maximus is a little ahead of its institutional moment. We can hope <laughs> that as time <laughs> goes on, there will be more institutional room for this kind of expression. I think that there will be, um, but you know, that's what you get for being ahead of your time a little bit here on this, but you're doing important work and you have a beautiful life, uh, family life from what I can tell and a lot of freedom now to think and work and write on what's interesting to you. And, and I know that I'm going to be always interested in looking for, you know, new things that you're writing and thinking about. And uh, you're, you're a real source of inspiration to a lot of us. So I just want to thank you for that. Well, thank you, David. I really appreciate it. Thanks for giving me the platform and, and, uh, and just the, the engagement. It's it's so fun to, uh, to have, it's fun to live in a time where we can do this, you know, and, and even though I never met you in person or whatever, it's like we can have these kind of conversations and other people can listen to it and hopefully it's enriching for everyone. All right. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, Let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.